Today's guest has been called the most powerful man in English theater. As joint CEO and creative director of Ambassador Theater Group, he owns or operates more than three dozen venues in London and around the country, and he claims to have done every job in theater there is except acting. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, executive director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm delighted to spend an hour with Howard Panter. Thank you. Let's start, Howard, with the fact that you, through Ambassador Theater Group, made a major acquisition of theaters, mm -hmm. namely the former Live Nation venues, yes. which brought you up to really now 40 theaters that yes. you either own or, or have leases on. That is enormous, and I don't think there's any equivalent to it in the U.S., and at this point, don't know that there's an equivalent to it here in England. How do you operate such a broad range of venues and and keep tabs on quality in all of them well it is it is a huge range as you say from from three and a half thousand seats down to a hundred seat studio theater at Trafalgar Studios 2 which is a, a space we use for new writing and new directors and indeed new producers very importantly um, Obviously, we have a large team of, of, of colleagues and, uh, and, and friends who work with us. Uh, we employ about 3,300 people. So it's you know, a lot of people doing a m m many different jobs, whether it be programming or whether it be marketing or whether it be finance or whatever it may be. So there's, it is a large organization, and we hope... Uh, that there's good and efficient communication between everybody, and we hope there are good and efficient systems between everybody. Um, I like to think we're a bit more like, and I'm not sure how, how relevant this might be to some of, your, some of the folk who may be listening to this, but I like to think we're a bit more like the BBC than a niche publisher. And by that I mean we do everything from Panorama, which is a, a, doc, a, which is a current affairs program, to a program like EastEnders, which is a soap opera, because we have every week up to 400,000 seats a week to sell. But that's our inventory, so it's vast. So we're very Catholic in our, in, our, um, in our range, but I have a mantra for the team, which is um, best of breed. I don't know whether you know a thing called Cruft's Dog Show, which is a famous dog show in this country. And you can sometimes be, you can be the best show, the best dog in the show can be a Labrador or it can be a Poodle. But what I care about is whether it's a pantomime or Porgy and Best, that we're the best of breed. So whether we're a Labrador or a Poodle, we're the best of breed. So here I am. Uh, I've, try, I've, tried, I've tried to explain that we try and focus on whichever genre it is and make it as good as it can be, given that the spectrum of our customers is so wide. Well, there's the obvious question is, are you first and foremost a theater owner or are you first and foremost a theater producer? How much of what is playing in your venues are you personally responsible for producing? Well, we probably create or cause to create about 25% of what happens in our buildings, which is that's just to give you a sense of the scale of it. And there are probably at any, you know, we probably present stroke produce six to 700 pieces of content every year. So that just gives you a sense of the scale of what's going on. I like to think without sounding too much like corporate speak, that we are vertically integrated as much as we can be. And I point to a chap called Shakespeare, who was quite vertically integrated, who knew a little bit about owning the theatres, writing the plays, in those days producing the plays, often acting in the plays, 
working with teams who put things on. In other words, in other words, it's not a new idea, uh, although relatively new post-war in the United Kingdom, for producers to be actively involved in theatre ownership other than their own, uh, their absolute, their own, their own material. In other words, Andrew Lloyd Webber tends to produce Andrew Lloyd Webber plays or musicals in his own uh, houses. Cameron, by and large, likewise, and then books other other people's work as well, if I can put it that way, programmes other people's work. We try to do, as I say, everything, literally from from, from uh, The Misanthrope recently with Kira Knightley and Damien Lewis through to we're producing 13 pantomimes this year with everyone from Scylla Black to, uh, uh, I don't know, Henry Winkler, as it were. So it's a huge spectrum of, of work again. And what we try and do is just be as... to take a producerial eye... On as many pieces of work as we can within within the within the amount of, of a programming that we that we create. So of course we can't produce everything, and of course we can't be absolutely involved in every single detail. But I do think we look at the caliber of the people involved in in the programming we bring, and particularly with our regional theatres, our customers won't come back if the projects and the and the program isn't of sufficient quality. I mean, I always said it's a bit like running, I don't know, if you ran an Italian restaurant and if, if three meals out of four were no good, people would not come back. So we have to make sure that wherever possible, the quality of the of, of the productions is as high as it can be. And for that, I have a team of producers, I have a team of general managers, I have a large team of people working in programming who are constantly sourcing material, constantly talking to producers, and very often we're involved in being the catalyst for a production or a, or a piece of presentation, and we talk to people who we can help create a piece of work, even if we're not creating it directly ourselves. One of the questions that came up with the Live Nation purchase mm-hmm. was that it was bringing you to a point where people were saying, were you going to control theater? And I read your response, which was, well, there's something like 450 theaters sure. in England. Um, we have, as we say, you know, 40. But that's still 10 percent of all of the theaters in the country. Again, I don't think there's any kind of centralized equivalent for it, certainly in the U.S., it would seem that there are projects that may or may not happen depending on whether you agree to put them into your venues or indeed whether you decide to invest in them or not. Well, up to a point, except we, as I mentioned, if we produce or cause to be produced, say, 25% of activity, then 75% we don't. And there is no practical way in which we could not be very closely involved with all manner of producers and production companies if we were not being friendly and supportive to them and they were not being friendly and supportive to us. So in other words, if we were creating diktats that were saying, you're in and you're out, so to speak, we'd have a, we'd have a problem on our hands just in terms of serving our theatres and serving our patrons. So Whatever you do, you're not, not everyone's going to love what you do, clearly. But I, I think that um, I think the track record shows that it's a very diverse programming, uh, a mix we have, that we have to serve our customers in a way that they feel happy with and content with because, A, we need so many of them, and, B, we need them to return so often. I, and I truly can't think of an instance where 
we've nicked something out of any reason other than we didn't think it was of sufficient quality. I truly can't think of a, I can't think of an occasion where we said, no, this is not going to happen, uh, other than we didn't believe it was going to appeal to to our, our, our patrons, whether it be in Sunderland or whether it be in Brighton or whether it be wherever it be. I truly can't think of anything that we haven't looked at objectively on its own merits and said, yep, we think this could really work in Milton Keynes and wherever else it might be, um, or no, for whatever reason, we really don't think this will work or won't stand up or, or whatever. So that the truth is at the moment that we need more and better productions, not less productions. So that naturally makes us supportive to and wanting uh, as many producers and directors and production companies to work with us as possible. You used the figure of 400,000 seats a night. A week. A week, I'm sorry. A week. With that many tickets to sell, do you find yourself in the position, you've mentioned quality several times, do you personally find yourself in the position... Or we should acknowledge your joint CEO, mm-hmm. Rosemary Squire, yeah, yeah. also your wife. Do you find yourselves in the position of at times booking or producing work that you personally don't like but because you believe it will fill your theaters? Well, uh, there, must, there have been occasions when things have not been to my taste. But I genuinely try with the company to put on things that we believe will be to the taste of a sufficient section of our customers otherwise we would have we would have difficulties clearly if if if, if we were producing things that that, that were abhorrent to, to a section of our of, of our public we would be in deep deep trouble no i mean clearly i can't like everything but I go back to my best of breed analogy that genuinely we look to create the best pantomimes, the best musicals, the best rock and roll shows, the best whatever we can of its type. We try and create the best we can because we know there are sections of our audience that want a great pantomime and want a great piece of opera or want a great piece of contemporary dance, whatever it is across the spectrum. So we do our absolute best to try and get the best we can of whether it's of, of whether it's a musical or whether it's a, a comedy or whatever it might be. But, you know, clearly there are occasions where it may not be entirely to my taste, but we do really try and work with the best people across all genres. So when did the theatre bug bite you? Let's talk about you for a few minutes. Well, I suspect, like a lot of people, it was when one was a child. And I seem to remember seeing, I believe it in fact was a pantomime. When I came back, we were, I happened as a child between when I was two and nine to be living in Australia. And when I came back to London... We saw a pantomime, and uh, as is often as the case with theatre, when you're four or five, it's the sensual quality of the theatre that attracts one. It's the quality of the light. It's the quality of all the people together. It's the quality of the building. I remember very distinctly, as people often do, the whoosh of the curtain, the, the, the house curtain going up, this great red thing. I remember this great red thing going up and down, something which I'd never seen before. So just very simple, visual, sensual things of that of that nature got me. And I think that just the anticipation and excitement which one felt just sitting in that darkened space with a group of other people waiting for something exciting, thrilling, entertaining to happen and feeling that at whatever 
uh, whatever basic level one felt that. And then as one went into school, um, I am um, very, very mildly dyslexic, which when I was um, at school was not recognised as, as, as uh, an issue. And so I was essentially at the back of the class, which meant I had to, as dyslexic folk often do, become adept at other things, particularly visual things, verbal things and so on. So I got into the arts and sport, basically, as the two things I could actually do or attempt to do and so as ever at school one ended up running the school theatre the pirate radio station the jazz club the rock and roll being in the rock and roll bands being whatever and doing all those things that one could do and still you know still be hopefully uh, useful in some way but it's very interesting because of course in theater so many people start with the script yeah and even mildly dyslexic, sitting down and reading a script was probably not an easy task for you. That's so you had to deal with it that's through we the other to, means. We, yeah, we may. I used to. I used to write. You know, I used to write. I don't know. I make up, create the comedy shows, the reviews, and things. I used to do a lot of comedy, um, write and direct, um, and that that was quite hard. But then I. But then one could get involved with the visual side of theatre, design, lighting, all of those things, which are practical skills usually. I mean, by practical skills, I mean you don't necessarily have to write much down to be able to create something visual. Um, and simply, as, as my school life went on, uh, as ever, there was a great teacher who happened to be my art teacher who rather floored me by explaining to me that I wouldn't be the next Picasso, but I seemed to be quite good at... So therefore, art school was not a good idea for me, but I seem to be quite good at theatre, so why didn't I try drama school? And rather than be an actor, as I seem to be stage managing and directing and everything else that was going on, why didn't I go to Lambda? Well, in fact, he suggested a couple of drama schools. Why didn't I go to Lambda? Where, in effect, there was a, a very practical production course, which I got into, and that's where I really started properly tasting what theatre was about. Well, when you say a production course, is that a course in technical theatre? Yeah, basically it was stage management. I learned stage management. I learned lighting design, sound design, design, directorial skills as well. Hmm. Plus we did all the acting classes as well in parallel. I mean, not to the same extent. Mm -hmm. So I learned to fence. I learned to do movement. I learned to voice. I learned... uh, And we we did a lot of textual stuff as well. We worked with plays and so on. So essentially... I came out of that course at Lambda, which is a, you know, one of the two or three great uh, drama schools I- in the UK, I think it's fair to say, uh, with real practical skills. You know, I could earn my living as a lighting designer, as a, as a stage manager, uh, after a little while as a director and so on. I could actually, I could actually apply the skills I learned. And again, because of, of my mild dyslexia, they were all tangible things that one could do one one could one could and one 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 develops strategies when one's dyslexic for getting round things for not um for not necessarily exactly reading something but knowing what it is or learning it through the night so you know what it is and you pretend to read or whatever now in fact my reading and other skills are perfectly normal but it took a lot of discipline and training to get to that point. But it, it, I think I was fortunate to be able to do practical things such as build scenery, for instance, which I did, which was something 
you just do on a carpenter's bench and you don't have to write well certainly in those days you didn't have to write anything down or read anything you just made flats or you made rostra or you made what steps or balustrades or whatever it was and lighting was something I particularly liked because it was again something which was very in those in those days incredibly practical you know you were focusing lanterns and you were working with the directors and the actors and the dancers whoever it may be to create a visual world through light which was which was wonderful and exciting and and something I could do without uh, getting caught out well you've already acknowledged that you directed mm-hmm. as well you moved beyond just mm-hmm. the 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 design of the visuals into creating an entire production and you you were directing at some fairly high profile places well i mean the, yeah i mean soho poly theater which was the, uh, the preceded, which preceded the soho theater which is now mm-hmm. in soho at one stage i was um joint artistic director with a guy called Fred Proud and at that stage Verity Bargate the famous Verity Bargate was the administrator and we had our theatre in Riding House Street we had our we had a theatre in King's Head we had we played the Travis Theatre in Edinburgh a lot and we played all over so yeah and it was the, it was the days when portable theatre was around which was it which was our comparable theatre which was the Howard Brenton Howard Parker Snoo Wilson David Hare company they were one company they were the writers company and then we were the kind of other company we were then the off Broadway whatever off West End you know we were the radicals of our day i suppose uh and you know we used to we used to put on new plays all the time and i got paid more than fred because i directed half the plays and fred directed the other half of the plays but i also built the scenery so i got a couple of pounds more a week (laughs) it's true it's true when did obviously there's an entrepreneurial portion to what you were already just describing but when did the idea of producing the work or producing other work um, come into into play? Well, I think I think it was it, I I I was directing, and I was being a stage manager and a company manager in the West End. I was sort of running two two parts of my life, and you won't be surprised to learn that the directing was paying very very little. And the stage managing and the company managing the West End was 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 keeping me fed and my partner or family at that stage fed and keeping me going. And and the more I did company managing and moving more into administration in the commercial theatre, the more it seemed natural to start progressing into producing. And bit by bit, one was an associate producer, or it was it wasn't particularly anything that one had planned it just it just evolved and bit by bit i was i guess what would be called line producing i was effectively the guy putting the thing together and then bit by bit i started moving into partnerships with individual other producers uh, and entrepreneurs and so it simply it grew um i guess it grew out of a desire to try and have more of the kind of shows I wanted to do being done uh, and and having a, a bit more say about how they were done, uh, which, of course, is immensely risky because once I started not working for other people but working for myself, then, of course, it became a much tougher uh, financial uh, life. Well, that was... 
going to be my next question. A key aspect of being a producer when you are the producer is securing the funding True. for the productions and coming out of design and stage management and directing and all of these things you've done. How did you go about finding funding and getting people to back you to say, okay, this guy can produce? <laughs> With great difficulty is the obvious, <laughs> the obvious answer. And uh, no, I mean, it took a long, long time and much heartache and much uh, crisis. But I, uh, I'm always rather smugly proud to say I don't think anyone's ever gone unpaid, uh, which I think is important that nobody's ever not, you know, whoever they may be, everyone's always got their money. But no, certainly, particularly when Rosemary and I were starting and when I was starting, I mean, the number of times... You can only mortgage your flat so many times to pay the salaries. Rosemary certainly sold her car twice to pay the salaries. I mean, you know, it's that stuff. I ha I come from, for a variety of reasons, domestically and family-wise, uh, I had absolutely no money when I started. And working in the kind of roles that I had in theatre before meant I had no capital because I just earned whatever I earned as a, a lighting person or whatever. That, there was no... Like, I was not able to build up any capital. Um, and it was very, very difficult. And one simply had to try and find... You know, it was the usual thing of... Will that auntie... Does she know a dentist who's got some money that I might be able to get a £1,000 from? I mean, it was, it was a nightmare. And I think you know, increasingly for young producers is so very, very, very difficult. Um, but bit by bit by bit, you gather around you people who you trust and they hopefully trust you, and bit by bit you build a bit of a track record where you start getting a few right and they're not all going wrong and and you start to you start to get some momentum, but it is incredibly difficult. Well, let me ask you, what was... The first show that you would say was your first production. Well, I, I guess the first one that I had my name above the title, as they say, in, in which I'm sure you, you'd get the reference, which was in the West End, which was a play by C.P. Taylor called And a Nightingale Sang, which had been, has been subsequently produced, but we produced the first one. My partner and I, a guy called Archie Sterling and I, who was then married to Diana Rigg, uh, we produced this play called Anna Nightingale Sang, uh, directed by the great late uh, Mike Ockrent, uh, with British Routledge in it and Gemma Jones. And I read enough to read it was a flop. It was a terrible flop. It was a terrible flop. And because I was such a, a novice, I um, we, we were cleaned out. It was very, very, very rough indeed. Mm. And uh, so, but that was the first play that I actually, that it actually said, Howard Panto presents. Then what was the first show <laughs> that said well, Howard Panther should be presenting and uh, had the success and started well, it's, people it's a, wanting to invest with It's you. a variety of things, but uh, Single Spies, which was the Alan Bennett, which I produced, right. which I, we, we, had the, we had the rights to it. In fact, we took it to the National Theatre and then we did a short season with them. And brought it. Single Spies was a big success for me. Um, Ro the Rocky Horror Show, which I've been involved in for over 21 years, has been uh, a, a, a great piece to be involved with. Um, 
Yeah, I think they're t- they're they're there two big milestones quite early. Do you on. go back to the because you say twenty one years that wouldn't go back to the original. No, it Rocky doesn't. Horror. I took it over in with Richard O'Brien. I can't do. I can't work it out. But it's like twenty one years from now, whenever mm-hmm. whenever that was. Uh, we it would have been mid eighty nine. That's right, eighty to eighty eight. Yeah, because certainly the show dates back to the mid seventy three, seventy four. Yeah. yeah. No, that was something that Richard O'Brien brought to me and another another person. Uh, because, as he said to me, as it happened, I'd worked as a company manager with his then wife, who'd been our wardrobe mistress, who said, because Richard O'Brien was looking for somebody that he could trust, and the wardrobe mistress said, well, is that nice man, which was one of those ridiculous little breaks in life. Mm. And Richard O'Brien said, I'd like you to restore the quality of my show all over the world and collect the money, which struck me as two very clear and sensible briefs to get from an author. And subsequently, we have tried to keep the, 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 the brand, terrible word, the show, as fresh as we can all over the world. We have different productions, whether it be in Australia or Austria or Argentina. We constantly try and create new creative momentum. We never clone it anywhere. It's not like... I don't know. I don't mean this rudely, but a cat's or something which tends. Well, it's to... not the doily cart production. Yeah, exactly. Of... No, it's it. We always try and find creative people who have their own take on it and can keep it fresh and so on. I think that's one of the reasons it's been so successful. But that has been something which has been a, a major piece of my life, and I guess also Carmen Jones, which we did at the old Vic Theatre which was a big show to do, Carmen Jones, mm. very rarely done, as you know. I think 1943 in, in, in Broadway is about the last time there's been a major production before ours. Um, and that was, that was a very important production. It, Simon Callow is a long-time collaborator of mine over many, many ventures. He directed that for us. And we ran for, I think, the longest-running show ever at the Old Vic. We ran there for about two, two, two and a bit years. We then toured it nationally and internationally. Um, it's an amazing piece of work. Mr. Hammerstein did an extraordinary, extraordinary job in transposing that 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 story to uh, African American 1943, uh, you know, uh, culture. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with the show, but it it, it is a it is a remarkable. Well, interestingly, the show doesn't get done. We've not seen it much in America. People, I think, people know the film, mm-hmm. but. But actually seeing it on stage is is a pretty rare sighting. It is. It is. I'd love to visit it again. It's it's an absolutely remarkable. And we had a great man called Henry Lewis, who was the first African-American black conductor at the Metropolitan Opera House, as it turned out, as our musical director, who's now sadly not with us, um, who came up with this great idea that instead of making it quasi-operatic in its scoring and in its orchestration, it should have a Glenn Miller sound. It should have, mm-hmm. of course... A swing sound from the war, which was, a, you know, the great, great sound that Glenn Miller had. Hmm. So we had the Bizet score played a la Glenn Miller, wow. which was gorgeous and took me a little bit of time to persuade James Hammerstein to think it was a good idea. But in the end, it was a very good idea. But he, he, Henry Lewis, a great, great artist. So as we're talking about all of these creative projects... When did the impulse come to be more than an independent producer and to start having venues? Well, I think it kind of comes out of, even as an independent producer, I found it very difficult um, to get the right venue at the right time for the right project. I just found it just practically very hard, even if I had the right creative team and the right actors and 
even if I had the money, which was, you know, to get all those things lined up is very, that's hard. And so, and I, and I kept seeing myself and my friends at the time, as I put it, being machine gunned to death on the barbed wire. And it just struck me that if one perhaps had a little more control of headquarters and could control the artillery a bit more, one may be able to blast away through the, um, through the barbed wire and be able to put the shows on at the right time and the right place in the right theatre. Uh, and therefore it came out of a practical desire to try and again have some quality and some consistency of the work, that if you didn't have the theatres, it seemed to me very, very hard to achieve this. And a number of producers have managed to achieve it without, without theatres, but I hardly know a producer, particularly on Broadway now, who doesn't say to me, it's a nightmare. You know, I'm talking about eminent people saying, it's a nightmare, I can't get a theatre for such and such a show. Now, you know, that's a, it's, it's a different... It's a different um, it's a different uh, structure in New York with the three big companies and so on, and they, they, the, the theatres tend to change hands much less uh, frequently than they have done historically in London since the Second World War. And when you say change hands, literally the ownership of the yes, theatres themselves. Yes, that's what I mean. So I think in London it's somewhat different. But, I mean, no, it came out of a desire to try and do theatre better and, 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 as I say, there are one or two quite remarkable you know, precedents for this where... Th- Theater, actor, theatre managers own the theatres. I mean, you know, it's not a new idea, this. But interestingly, it had become slightly out of fashion and there was sort of us and them, producers and theatre owners, theatre owners and producers. And I could never quite see the logic of this. It seemed to me it was better, not better, but it suited the way we were working to try and have that and then try and have... I've always been a hugely passionate about the regional theatre dynamic in any country. I've never been Broadway-centric or West End-centric. We've always been regional-based as well because, A, that's where most people live and, B, that's where there's huge, huge creative dynamic and, and just, C, that's where there's a bigger economic base as well, so it makes so much more sense to do that. So we've always tried to develop regional theatres and London theatres together. Can you just clarify for me, I want to make sure we're talking about the same thing. When you refer to regional theaters, are you referring to resident theaters with an artistic director in their own place, or are you talking about what we would call a touring house? We are talking about what we would call regional commercial theaters, which take touring projects, whether they be opera or whether they be musicals or whether they be plays and sometimes they have connections with regional producing companies and so on and very often we, and we have a lot of alliances whether it be with Glyndebourne touring which for instance we're their biggest partner in the regions or whether it be with whoever it may be with what it, whatever it may be we have a, a bunch of creative alliances but essentially they are they are theatres which are very often the main theatre in Brighton or the main theatre in Sunderland or wherever it might be where the people go to see a variety of different kinds of theatre which we certainly in the UK and in with our company tend to keep open 48 to 50 weeks in the year maybe two to three weeks a year for maintenance or whatever so we keep them over open pretty much year round uh, and are programmed with a huge range of different types of, of theatre. Okay, but but what you would say is regional theatre, in the U.S. we would think of as a presenting or a touring theatre. Yes, I think it's a slightly different structure, actually, in the U.S., yes. and I think it's a... But that's but it's it, in, in simple terms, I think it, they are equivalent. And, yes. and I'm all for keeping it simple. <laughs> <laughs> so it was interesting to find that ATG itself 
was only formed in 1992, mm-hmm. that this growth has all happened in under 20 years. Yeah. It's pretty extraordinary. Did you always hope that it would be this large or did it just happen? No, I, th- I, I think it's happened because uh, the mix of London and regions we always thought was synergistic in all sorts of ways. In other words, you can take production from one place to another. You can spread your economic uh, risk in that way. You can develop ticketing schemes. You can develop marketing schemes. You can develop... Uh, we have a huge loyalty program, you know, with nearly there's nearly eighty thousand members of our loyalty group who who who, who are friends, if you will, of, of ATG. We have a database of something like four point nine million households now, which is about eleven million theatre goers. I know of no other database in the world which has got that number of regular theatre goers. And by regular theatre goers, I mean they go every four months to an ATG show or an ATG theatre. So that's a huge number of people we've met. But it's it's evolved because the more you get the right matches, the more the more you can create uh, a platform and a working environment that hopefully creates better, more sustainable, more vibrant and more viable theatre. So it's not a conscious thing. We never started out to do 40 theatres or 10 theatres or 8 theatres or whatever. It's just that as opportunities arise, one can see how if one puts that one together with that one and this arises here, that one can build something which has hopefully a more effective critical mass. Now, I hope I get the language correct. I find it very interesting that there is a wholly owned subsidiary Mm -hmm. of ATG, Mm -hmm. which is Sonia Friedman Productions. Yes, indeed. What is the relationship of Sonia as a producer to ATG? Well, Sonia started working with us as an in-house producer. She joined us um, some little time ago. Uh, as we have in-house producers, and then as, and over a number of years, we worked, she she developed a particular strand of, of, of work, and after a while it seemed a good idea to create a separate autonomous uh, unit for from a producing perspective. But what, what it does, I mean, what it does is that, is that Sonia is able to uh, produce the work that she she likes and wants to do, but it's within a broader family, if I can put it that way. Um, whether it be logistical matters that support her, whether it be IT or finance or whatever it may be, all the things that people need to make companies work, or whether it be a network of venues to which she can be connected, which can make work work, and whether it can be, most importantly, a... Uh, if you will, an underpinning and underwriting financially because um, uh, our company stands behind and underneath, if you will, Sonia's work. But she does, as a producer, still have to go out and raise funds for her productions. It's not that you just fund them. Absolutely. She does, absolutely. She goes and raises funds. She has many great working relationships with all sorts of other producers and and people that finance and investors, as well as a a tremendously um, successful and important group of creative relationships as well. But she has us there... uh, Rosemary, my wife, and Helen Enright, our, our finance director, and I are her board, as it were, a, a, a board of directors with with her. There are four of us who are the board of her company. Um, I mean, 
it's not a million miles away from, I don't know, uh, a, a film studio that has well, a, number of, a number of relationships with independent, with it, so, quotes, independent, independent film producers. I mean, I hope that, that the setup that we have with Sonia, and I hope she feels the same, we're still together, so I guess she must feel the same, I hope that it allows her to create a, a greater range of work, uh, take more risks, uh, be entirely independent creatively with authors and directors and, and actors and so on. But if you will have the support mechanism and, and, and the backup, which if and when she needs it, it's there. Mm. So I, I think there are models in publishing, there are the models in film world, there are models in, in the television world and so on and in, in the music business where there is this relationship between... and what you know, one wants her to be as distinctive and as 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 uh, autonomous creatively as she possibly can be and wants to be and and will be knowing Sonia as I'm <laughs> sure you do uh, that she she you know that 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 she she will uh, she will thrive we hope in this in this environment and it's something which we together with Sonia created this idea and it seems to by and large work could you see yourself having other divisions like that with a series of producers it is possible i think sonia is very special and very particular uh we have we have discussions from time to time we have other alliances with other producers it is possible that such uh, it would very much depend on the individual and what their work was and what they were trying to do but yeah i mean it's always possible and we constantly co-produce with different people um and sometimes those relationships are most productive but at the moment we have no specific plans to create another if such a thing could be contemplated another sonia friedman productions you mentioned earlier the difference between theatre ownership here in England versus theatre ownership on Broadway. Mm -hmm. Having produced shows mm -hmm. on Broadway, sure. both shows, shows that have come over and most recently mm -hmm. Guys and Dolls, sure. where really you were taking the lead sure. in a new show for Broadway. What are the major differences between producing here versus producing in the United States? Well... I think you know a lot of the obvious ones. It's far less expensive to produce here. It's far you, you, you just cost less to produce in the UK. By way of comparison, well, it 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 depends. I mean, it's not fair. I'm producing Elling at the moment on Broadway, which we've just gone into rehearsal, which is this play based on the Norwegian film called Elling, which was a, a, a successful film and indeed a successful production for us in the UK, and we commissioned a guy called Simon Bent, to write an adaptation of the film, which is what we produced in London successfully and what we're producing in New York successfully. I mean, it's not fair because it was a different setup and we started at the Bush and so on, which is an off-Broadway theatre in London. But in London, it cost us about £250,000. Three years on, it's costing us $2.5 million. Right, but when we say £250,000, we're talking about $400,000 yes, for take. Yes, that's right. So... There's a significant difference. Yeah. Significant difference. When I mean, uh, I think when we did um, Sweeney Todd, uh, which I'm very proud, we took to New York, the, the John Doyle production of Sweeney Todd, 
again, that cost in, in the UK, it cost me about £200,000. That was moving it from the water mill to the Trafalgar Studios? That's right, and then moving it to Ambassadors, all up, it was about two or £300,000, mm-hmm. the whole thing, and developing it. Where's and when the you, and, when, and when you move it to New York, it's near three million so, so dollars. I mean, I know you're not yeah. quite comparing. But, but where does the big difference come? Why is there such disparity? Well, I think that the cost of, of, of labor in uh, Broadway is particularly high. I think it's probably the highest I know of anywhere in the world in terms of comparable trading. And we trade in Germany, Australia, South America, Korea, Japan, you, you name it. We've, we've traded and we do trade. So it, you know, the, the mantra of the cost of labor, the cost of the unions, the cost of all of that is a lot higher uh, in New York. Uh, the cost of advertising is a lot higher relative to, to the number of hits you get, you know, as it were, the New York Times against the Sunday Times in, in the UK is a lot higher. Um, fees and expectations and things generally are proportionately higher. Um, and there used to be a time when, you know, the, the, the ticket prices reflected that. Uh, now I think you, the London ticket prices, the gap is closing quite considerably on Broadway, uh, probably with good reason. I think also that I don't believe that I could have put Sweeney Todd on as I put it on in the West End of London. I could have put it straight on on Broadway from the Watermill. We do a lot of enhancing at the Watermill. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot. I say several shows over many years. We've enhanced and helped, and I love it there, and so on. And John Doyle and I are old friends and all of that. Um, I don't believe I could have put on that Sweeney Todd with 10 or 11 or 12 people, actor, musicians, straight onto Broadway, had it not been a success at the Ambassador's Theatre in London. I don't believe that would have been possible. I think everyone would have said, no, no, you can't. And when we put it on at the Trafalgar Studios and the Ambassador's, not only did, thankfully, uh, Stephen Sondheim continue to be a fantastic supporter of, of, of the treatment of the piece, but suddenly the Broadway community went, wow, this can really work, can't it? You really don't have to. You really can do Sweeney Todd. It's perfectly viable to do it. I'm not saying it's the only way or the best way, I'm saying, but it's perfectly viable to do Sweeney Todd in this chamber form uh, and make it very urgent and very exciting and very uh, scary uh, uh, and, and create great theatre at a price. I mean, I think it's one of the very few and I say this with the deepest of love and respect for Mr. Sondheim, as you can imagine. But I don't believe there are many Sondheim shows that have recouped on Broadway. Our Sweeney Todd recouped and made a profit on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that says something not about necessarily the quality of the piece, but about the economic base that came from the UK that allowed it to be a be profitable on Broadway. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Well, again, it had been developed. All the, a lot of the that's, work had been done conceptually, though there was a new cast. It that, was not like the English no, cast not at was all. brought over. Yeah, but, all. but all yeah. of the development of how it would work, and it grew along the way from the water mill to that's Trafalgar right. and, and so on. Um, I'm curious, one of the, the charges um, that's leveled at Broadway theater now for plays in mm. particular is that you can't do a play mm-hmm. without a star in it. Mm-hmm. And most of the stars will only do a 12-week run. Mm-hmm. I've always been struck when I come over here how often the runs seem so short. And obviously the economics work differently because you don't have to invest mm-hmm. so much up front. But for for the life, for the com- life of a play commercially, mm-hmm. is... Is it still possible to do short run hits over here 
or do you need stars now too? Well, you can create plays that have just got you know stones in his pockets as an example of a play which is at one of our theatres. I wasn't in fact involved in the production of it, but it was a play with frankly actors that nobody had heard of and was a huge commercial success. I did a play called The Weir, which we developed at the Royal Court Theatre with Stephen Daudry, which developed a tiny little stage, funnily enough, on the Ambassador's Theatre, which we then owned, which we then had two or three spaces in, in a wonderful Daudry fashion, uh, where, you know, great fun to create a tiny theatre and create three little theatres in it. The Weir had no stars in it. Stones' Pockets had no stars in it. Both of those plays were hugely commercially successful in London. Um, and uh, The Weir went on to be quite a success on Broadway, without any stars in it. Quite a success. Harder. Yeah, it is still possible. The economic model does make it easier uh, to uh, the misanthrope, which I just mentioned before. I think we ran for 15 weeks, did we? Something like that. 14, 15 weeks. Um... You know, it, that, as it happened, that was a very large success, so that recouped relatively quickly. You certainly can recoup faster. I mean, with Elling, the play I'm doing at the moment on Broadway, which is going to the Barrymore Theatre, uh, you know, we've got Brendan Fraser and Dennis O'Hare, who's a wonderful actor, uh, Jennifer Coolidge and, and, and so on, Richard Easton, all of whom are fabulous. Um, you know, you can argue there are some loved people in there. Are any of them called... Al Pacino and uh, Julia Roberts, probably not. But you know, they're great actors. They're names. They're certainly. names, but they're not. They're not names. They're not Kira Knightley. They're not Kira Knightley. Not Kira Knightley. <laughs> so so. We'll, we'll see. But I mean, I, 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 look. I think that the short answer is it's economically easier in London, and I suspect there is less dependent upon single review. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that. I think that there is a diver- greater diversity of, of critical um, opinion, perhaps, in London. I think it is possible to, you know, for one of the major critics to not like a play and for another one to like it and it, for it to work if if there's momentum b- behind it and so on. Um, and again, there's the transfer from the subsidised sector. You know, Jerusalem we've been involved in recently. I mean... No, no, no stars. Well, I mean, you know, obviously Mark Rylance is a fantastic, the important theatre actor, but I still challenge most people to walk down Shaftesbury Avenue and say, do you know who Mark Rylance is? And most people in the street won't know who Mark Rylance is. So he's not a name actor over here? I think he's a name actor for a theatre audience. But not like a Dennis O'Hare That's right. in the US. That's right. I mean, he's a wonderful actor, clearly. Yeah. I mean, Mark is one of the great actors of his generation or of any generation, I mean, Mark is a phenomena, uh, clearly. But 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 you 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 know you you, you ask a hundred people in downtown Milton Keynes if they know who Mark Rylance is, and I think you'd find not many did. Uh, but so I think that there are there are ways there are, there are ways different. But 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 I'm I'm still optimistic about Broadway. I still believe word of mouth. If something is really Capturing people's imagination, touching them, moving them, making them feel they were glad they came, that it was worth the journey, that it was something particular and special, that their stories in one way or another, the audience's stories I'm talking about, in one way or another, were being told up there in a specific way. I still believe that's our unique selling proposition in theatre, and I still believe that when that works, an audience is pleased they're there. 
getting them there in the first place, of course, is a different discussion. Let me ask you about another country where you work, mm-hmm. which is Australia. Yep. What's the dynamic there? Is it closer to the English theatre? I think I think it's I think the commercial theatre actually is probably closer to the American model in some ways, insofar as commercial musicals are quite separate often from I've done a play from La Felling I did a play with Sydney Theatre Company and we have a tie up with the Sydney Theatre Company I, I did one of Andrew's plays over here called Rifle Mine which it's I like Andrew Upton yes. the uh, artistic uh, director Andrew Upton yep. artistic director with Kate Blanchett of Sydney Theatre Company and I did Elling down there with them and I did Rifle Mind over here and we're looking at developing some other plays together in a way the the Sydney Theatre Company model if you like and the Sydney Opera House model if you like down there is rather more, if I can put it this way, Manhattan Theatre Company, Lincoln Centre orientated uh, than some of the places where we do mainstream things such as, I don't know, we've just got West Side Story at the moment in Melbourne, which is, thank God, very successful. It's playing a big commercial theatre in Melbourne and it's going on to play Perth and Brisbane and Adelaide. It'll play big commercial theatres. It's not to say we don't want to work with, and we we do cross over all the time. I mean Exit the King, which is something I'm particularly proud of being involved in, was something that I just saw Geoffrey Rush do in a, in a Neil Armfield production, but obviously not the same production as we had in New York. I mean, you just see that performance in a small theatre in Melbourne and you go... This is the goods. This is extraordinary. This this must come to Broadway. This must, you know, all the West End. This must come because this is it. This is amazing. The crossover isn't quite the same. That the performing talent in Australia is. I can't think of a, a performing pool that's as good, head for head, population wise. They've invested so much in their schools. They've invested so much in their training. They have some of the best training in the world. Some. Of the, the best performing talent in the world is Australia. It's absolutely remarkable. If you look at the number of film stars that come out of Australia, they tend to punch above their weight, and they all come from theatre. That's where they come from. So that's very much more like the English system. But the commercial theatre generally is more like the American system where you're, you know, you've got to have a big blockbuster and... You know, Rocky Horror always does well for us down there and Legally Blonde, I hope, will do well for us down there and so on. So, in a way, that's just... That's big, popular, mainstream theatre. I think it's a shame there isn't a bit more crossover and there's a lot of discussion in Australia about how there should be more crossover. Interestingly, Simon Phillips, who is the artistic director of Melbourne Theatre Company, is going to direct Love Never Dies, the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical down there, which is an interesting piece of crossover. He's the director of Priscilla. I'm not involved in any of those productions, by the by, but just just, just as a piece of how the crossover is, is occurring. There's an interesting thing about crossover, which is you mentioned Legally Blonde, so I'll ask. Legally Blonde was not a huge hit in the United States, mm-hmm. which certainly is where it began, it's yep. where the film is from, it's sure. where the title was probably most known. It's done extremely well here in England, yes. much better here yep. than it did. What are the issues of how things translate? Because we have shows that start here, become great hits in America. We have shows, particularly the musicals that start in America, come over here, yet I find the plays a lot more not hit or miss in quality, but harder to, to figure out what works here and what works there and what will work in both places. Well, two, two, two points, perhaps, there. One, just quickly dealing with Legally Blonde. 
uh, I think I loved Legally Blonde when I saw it in New York. I actually loved the road production of Legally Blonde a lot. Uh, two things, really, or three things, really. One, we got our economic model right in London, so we didn't have a, a dead weight round our neck. It cost about 2.7 or 2.8 million here, something like that, pounds. I don't know the exact number, but I believe it was 14 to 15 to 16 million dollars. Right, York. versus 7 million dollars, so, so, roughly. So, there was a, so the economic modelling was right. That actually linked to creative modelling to create something which was in a slightly more intimate theatre, uh, the great feeling we had talking to everyone about Legally Blonde, it was a musical comedy, comedy, not a big spectacle, comedy. It was about people you cared about, about people you, your heart went out to, you needed to be closer to. So we have it at a 1,200-seater. The palace was like a 16 or 1,800-seater or something in New York. I think that is, a, is a, I love the Palace Theatre. I've done successful shows in the Palace Theatre. I happen to think, with hindsight, that the Palace Theatre was too big for Legally Blonde. And we've brought it down in scale. We've made it more intimate. We've, with Jerry Mitchell and the creative team, the American creative team, I hasten to add, we've absolutely focused on casting actors who can sing and dance rather than singers and dancers who can act. Because we think the comedy and the humanity is what's going to make Legally Blonde work and has made it work. So that's just my little piece about Legally Blonde. In terms of plays that will work, won't work, well... Again, I wasn't involved in it, but clearly Enron was a colossal flop on Broadway, and as I understand, there was a great deal of hostility towards en- Enron in New York, whereas Enron in the UK has been a big, big success and is now on tour a number of our venues, as a matter of fact, and is doing extremely well here, playing with no stars to regional theatres and is a success. I think one has to look at the zeitgeist, whatever the word is, at any particular moment, and possibly Enron was out of sync with where the sentiment of a lot of folk had got to in New York about the financial meltdown and so on. Uh, I don't know. I wasn't involved, but that's my theory. But then you can do something, as I say, like, you know, The Weir, which was kind of a thriller, but not really a thriller, about some guys and a girl talking about stuff in an Irish pub, and that's basically what it was, and that moved people on both sides of the Atlantic, it seems to me. Mm. It's... it's uh, I don't think there's a single formula, obviously. I don't think anybody knows what it is. I think in the end, you just have to hope that there's enough humanity in what you're doing and enough universality in what you're doing to connect with people on both sides. And sometimes with something like Enron, I think you just, you know, you appear to just rub people up the wrong way, if you can you can put it that way. I, I didn't see it in New York, so I have no idea of the quality of the piece in New York. Um, so I don't know about that. But I think it's tricky. I also think that our critics over here are unduly unhelpful towards younger or living American playwrights. I think Hen- uh, you know, Arthur Miller couldn't be more uh, revered at the moment, as it were. You know, Mamet and Shepherd are okay because they're pretty mature, ancient artists. I don't mean it rudely, but you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying. It's harder to get new, contemporary, younger. I mean, I've produced Neil LeBoot and I'm about to do another Neil LeBoot play. He's considered, I think, sufficiently middle-aged. I'm, now, here I'm being quite uh, provocative in what I'm saying. But, you know, I do think there is a, there is a lack of understanding of, from a lot of the critical community in the UK towards a lot of the very contemporary, younger writing that's going on in North America, which I think is a shame, frankly. And, I think, you know, that's just something which is a little bit of a beef of mine, that it's very hard to get young American playwrights done over here 
very often. Although I suspect you would find that young American playwrights in America would tell you it's very hard to get their plays done in America. That's, so. that, that's, that, I'm sure that's true. I just think there is, amongst certain people, a certain prejudice against unproven mm-hmm. American playwrights here, which I think is a shame. Um, and uh, I think that probably British plays going over there would be very interesting how Jerusalem does. I mean, obviously, we all have high hopes for it, but but I know a number of Americans who have seen Jerusalem who said, I don't understand it. What world is it? And you go, well, it's about dysfunctional, you know, people being dysfunctional. And they go, yeah, but what is this thing about Dorset or wherever it is? You know, <laughs> you know so, so, so there's sometimes... Oh, dear, is cricket mentioned at yes, any point? That's that, a problem. That's, but you know what I mean. So there's an interesting, there's an interesting line between things that become very particular to a location or locality or, or a nationality that sometimes just don't get over. Well, then that brings me to the question. When you announced the purchase of the Live Nation theaters, mm-hmm. you talked about wanting to develop a stronger relationship not only between Broadway properties and West End properties, but you said regional and different companies. How do you envision the growth of ATG and the movement of, and it's a terrible way to talk about it, but the movement of theatrical properties between the U.S., Australia, England, and perhaps elsewhere? Yeah. Well, indeed, I'm, I'm working on this as a, as, a, as a very important part of what we're doing, and, and I think I may have used the slightly pretentious phrase international distribution network, but if you accept that that was a little bit high-flown, I am, and I've just come back from New York, I've been working with people in individual cities who produce plays. I've been working with people who produce musicals and develop musicals in individual cities and centres. I've been talking to people who tour individual musicals. As you know, for instance, I mean, something very simple, like we're we're co-producing the the wonderful South Pacific North American tour from the Lincoln Centre, and that we're going to bring to the UK. And that's relatively simple, but I say relatively simple, it's obviously got massive complexities, but it's relatively simple as a model. But what I'm trying to do is I, I believe that the problems, if you will, or the issues or the challenges in Chicago are the same challenges as we have in Manchester. Uh, and therefore, I'm talking to a number of practitioners, directors, writers, producers, people that run regional theatres, as you would define regional theatres, as opposed to presenting theatres, as well as talking to people who run presenting theatres and are connecting with presenting theatres, and as well as people that do regional touring to try and create this network where one can create large-scale lyric work, by and large, which can play in San Francisco and play in Sunderland and from time to time play in York or London. But that's not the primary objective. The primary objective is to have major work, whether it be a new version of Porgy and Bess or whether it be a new play, by saying new version I mean production, playing big cities across North America, big cities across the UK. Together, I believe that you'll be able to create more work of a sustainable level because we have the circuits linked together, which has never been coherently done. It's always been done in an ad hoc fashion. Nobody's ever tried to do it coherently. Miles Wilkin tried to do it a bit when he was at Pace, uh, which then became SFX and Clear Channel and everything else under the sun, but there was never really the producing dynamic in there. We have a considerable resource which we're going to bring to bear on this producing 
financial and I hope creative resource which we're linking up with and I've literally been talking to half a dozen people on my last trip it's too early to name because I don't want to as it were let things out of the bag in the wrong way but there are people right across North America who say yes please me too this problem I have in X city is the problem you have there if we can get together and create this piece of work, if we can talk to this group of authors, we can talk to this estate, we can create... And this is not apologetic saying it's regional. This is saying this is where the heartbeat is. We're going to create big work that works across these two circles. Obviously, it could go to Australia and parts of Asia as well, subsequently, and indeed parts of Northern Europe as well. Because all of these places have equivalent issues. So, but to create... The two mature markets, the North American market, US and Canada and the UK, they're the two markets that have got coherent circuits or semi-coherent uh, circuits. Put those two together, start creating large pieces of work to do across both, and you suddenly are talking to authors and creative teams and producers about 18 months, two years of regional touring. For certain, there is no one else saying that. There's nowhere else that is happening. And that one can plan the work to do all of that. One isn't saying, oh gosh, I hope it fits, or will it fit, or how is it going to work, or we need Broadway first. And we invest in the content, and we invest in the infrastructure, and we invest in the partnerships, and we invest in the audiences, and we invest in the educational work that goes with it. So you start to create, recreate the habit of going to see not things that are three years after Broadway, but things that exist in their own right. Well, it will be fascinating to see how that all plays out. <laughs> Howard Panther, co-CEO and creative director of the Ambassador Theatre Group, 40 theatres in England and counting, one presumes. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today on Downstage Centre. Great pleasure. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Centre program is Taz Matar. Post-production is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. This edition of Downstage Centre was recorded in the studios of Imachum Creative Services in London, and we thank them for their generous support. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.